Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Every person thinks they would never succumb to the addictions that litter this world. None of us realize just how easy it is to fall into the trap of addiction. And we assume it would never seduce us, never impact us, and never kill us. But we'd be wrong, deadly wrong. The following are the true accounts of just a small percentage of people who struggle with addiction issues. We are honored to share their stories. Welcome. 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 Welcome to Addicted. Welcome back to another Addicted interview. On this interview, I'm excited because I have somebody who has been a friend for a little over a year now, and I didn't know her struggles, and so I'm I'm really excited to have her on to talk to her. Kate, why don't you introduce yourself, you know, a little bit about your backstory and where you come from. My name's Kate, and Kevin and I met because I have a podcast called Ignorance Was Bliss. That's been running for about four years now, and I refer to myself as a story collector, so sometimes it's the two of us talking about my guest's story, and sometimes it's about a story out in the world, about a historical event or true crime or the like. The reason I started podcasting is that I'm on permanent disability. I broke my back, which is a terrible idea. Just laying that out there right now. Not, not ideal. Prior to that, I worked as a forensic psychologist and a crisis clinician. And so I have experience in the, you know, both the psychology, it's sort of the, at the end of the line is when you might end up seeing a forensic psychologist. And at the beginning of the line is when you walk into the ER and say, I'm in crisis or I'm feeling suicidal or I'm feeling like I'm having a psychotic break or the like, or I need help with substance abuse treatment, that kind of thing. And you walk into the ER and I'm one of the people that talks to you and figures out what do we do from there. So that's my professional background. And I also have a personal history of addiction myself, which I think, you know, I mean, I'm confidently well into recovery and stable with that. And I think the things that I went through and experienced and survived made me a better clinician. So what was your first exposure to either drugs and alcohol and what was your drug of choice? I mean, my my drug of choice were, was opiates, prescription pills specifically. First exposure, I was, I, I was a super nerdy, kind of not cool kid in high school. So I think it went to two parties. But then in college, I kind of went over the edge uh, with drinking. I ended up marrying my bartender. That is a thing. I had PTSD from uh, sexual assault when I was 12 years old. And so I went to college early and alcohol was the first time that I didn't feel that weight of doom and fear and the self criticism and all of it like I just I felt looser I felt better and that and landed me in some other bad situations through college or whatever and so I'm very lucky that I became a mother when I was 22 and stopped drinking 
just straight up stop then. And now I can drink socially and it's fine. Alcohol was never my drug of choice. Through my 20s, really no meds were an issue for me. I was getting my doctorate. I was having kids. I was sort of getting my feet under me and feeling pretty good. And then in my late 20s, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, which is an autoimmune disorder in which effectively my body thinks I need a second spine, sort of. So it fuses my vertebrae. It starts at the tailbone and it fuses your vertebrae. The the casual name for it is bamboo spine because that's kind of what it looks like. And that fusion that new bone growth is super brittle. And, you know, you can break your back sneezing or rolling over wrong. Or in my case, I was 20, in my late 20s, when I probably had my first fracture. And then it kind of just kept getting worse. And it hurts. And and your your, your joints all swell. And it's just, it's a mess. It's, it's not a good time. And so when I was in my late 20s, around, I was diagnosed 27, so probably 28, 29, that's when I started having, you know, as needed, either Vicodin or Percocet prescribed. I can't take certain non-opiate painkillers, specifically Ultram, because it can cause seizures and I have epilepsy. So that was how it was. And this is also in, I was living in New Hampshire at the time in the early 2000s before it was so difficult to get pain meds prescribed. So it was pretty casual. It was mostly, you know, my, my primary care doc prescribed it and, and I was fine with it. Like I was able to make a month's prescription last a month and that was no big deal. And then when I was 32, I had my third kid and I clinically died in childbirth. And that's a whole other story that would fill up your entire episode on its own. The moral is I spent a week and a half in a coma and then six weeks in the hospital. And when I was discharged from the hospital, so six weeks later, I had an incision, still an open surgical incision from sternum to pelvis. And I also had a hole all the way through my abdominal wall on my right side, like the size of a grapefruit. I didn't know people could live through that. Apparently they can because I seem to still be alive. And obviously that came with ridiculous amounts of pain. And so when I came out of the coma, I was already on the maximum human dosage of morphine, and then they switched it back to pills, but I was on OxyContin and then other formulations of opiates over time. And then they just never stopped prescribing them. Like, I, st- I mean, it, it took a long time for me to heal, and so for a little while that made sense. There's a thing that happens when you're on a heavy amount of especially opiate, but any kind of painkiller, is you become what's called hypergesic. So analgesic means getting rid of pain, right? And if you stop taking analgesic medications, you your body has a hypergesic response, which hyper means extra. It means things that might normally hurt you a little bit hurt a whole hell of a lot. 
and that is one of the things that makes withdrawing from painkillers so difficult. And so I wasn't pushing to withdraw because every time I tried to ramp down, all of these, you know, the neurons that I'd been numbing for a year screamed back into life. And I was dealing with profound PTSD based on my medical experiences and a lot of struggles in a lot of different directions. And so I was like, you know what, if I can just numb out, that's cool. And after a while, that isn't enough anymore to continue numbing out. And so I started to learn ways to make the medications work better. And these are things I don't talk about on mics, the specific answers to that, because I don't need to be handing that information out to the general public. But there are certain sort of combinations and tricks, and I think every addict kind of has them. And I was able to do the lie that a lot of people addicted to pills tell themselves is that, well, my doctor's prescribing it for me, so it must be okay. And I knew it wasn't okay. But the next five years or so were really bad, were really intense. You nod off when you're supposed to be in the middle of a sentence or supposed to be paying attention to your kids. And like I was never alone anyway because I couldn't physically be alone with my kids. And so my kids were never left alone with me when I was under the influence. But that in its backwards way, I would then justify like, well, since I'm not alone with them, I can, I can numb out now. I can, I can, and it didn't feel high to me. It just felt numb. And that was my, like, I, I don't want to hurt. And so first it's you wait until you're hurting and then you take the meds and then it's, I don't want to start hurting. So I'm going to take the meds earlier. That kind of thing. Like you, you develop all of these rituals to just not feel pain physical or emotional pain. And because I have PTSD, there's there's some poor decision-making that can get tied in there and avoidant decision-making. And so by the time I was in my late 30s, you know, about five years later, I was a mess. I was, I never obtained medication off the street because I didn't need to. But I also was definitely taking more than I needed. It was damaging my ability to sleep at night. So like I'm nodding off during the day, but I'm wide awake at night. Like all of these things that you don't really think about happening. And finally, you know, my husband had said to me more than once, this is a problem. I I see that this is a problem. This is not cool. And I wasn't receptive to that for a long time because I had really believed I need this. I was terrified at the idea of not having these pills at my disposal at all times. And it finally just, I don't, I, there wasn't really a moment of clarity. I just got tired. I got tired of knowing that my kids are growing older and I'm missing out on things. I'm not remembering their school events, which to be fair, sometimes it's okay to not remember a middle school 
chorus or band concert. Do you know what I mean? Like they should have an open bar at those. But for real, I was missing out on important events and I wasn't connecting with my husband. I wasn't connecting with my kids. And, and I already felt sort of disconnected from my own life. And by the way, in the middle of all of this, I broke my back, like hard break broke my back and that's I had to go on disability as well so I'm I'm depressed I'm isolated and I realized like this is only getting worse this is only going farther and farther downhill my my use and my sense of uselessness and so when I broke my back in 2014 that's when I had to go on full disability and I've not ever been able to return I can still walk around but very limited distance and it hurts a lot still my prescriptions and use got worse for a little while after I broke my back and then maybe a year or two later I realized like my back isn't going to get better and when I'm older it's going to hurt more and I'm not going to have any meds like I, I will have I'll be up the ceiling of the amount that they can prescribe to me or they just won't prescribe it anymore because I could I could see that I was starting to think about the ways and tr tricks and tips that I heard from people who were addicted at my work and I was starting to think like I could do that and I never quite crossed that line but I was paying closer and closer attention and I realized like I don't want that at any point did your doctors start to to question how much you know medicine you were taking or were you had you at that point were you able to convince them that you needed this medication they convinced me that i needed it like i was already on i was on a i mean i was i was i believe my memory is a little bit fuzzy because i have i when you're in a coma for a while you have a little bit of a it, it's the equivalent of a traumatic brain injury so i have some memory issues due to that but i think that it was at about the it was after the first trimester but before the third trimester so i had been that's when i weaned off opiates voluntarily during my pregnancy because i didn't want the baby to be born addicted and so i had been off all opiates for maybe four or five months at the time that i had the baby and then went into the coma and when I came out of the coma, I was already on the maximum human dosage. And there were a couple of times where I tried to talk to different doctors about, like, is this safe? And their answer was effectively, you're within the typical prescribed range for what you experienced. Talk to your next doctor. Talk to us next month. Talk to us next month. And they just sort of kept prescribing it. With all the information that's coming out now, with all the opioid crisis and the and the Purdue pharmaceuticals and all that, do you think that's stemming from them trying to just push this drug out? That wasn't the sense that I got from me. I'm I know that that is the case for a lot of people, but for me, the way that I got sick happens to so there are there are four million live births in the United States per year. A hundred of those get sick the way that I did. Ninety-eight of those die. One loses all four limbs and one walks away. So I think the doctors were sort of so stuck on this, like, 
medical miracle kind of you know mindset like i you lived through this thing and we have to do whatever we can to just get her through and i think i i who i was and what i really needed i don't think they asked and i didn't know that i should tell them otherwise like they told me this is what i needed to take and it's what i needed to take and by the time i really realized like maybe i didn't need that much i was fully in at what point did you realize that enough was enough and you needed to get yourself clean? Like, it's probably two years after I broke my back and my husband was frustrated with me. You know, I've been married, to, like I said, since I was 22. So by that point, I'd been probably married probably 16, 18 years, somewhere in there. I didn't know, I don't know how to not to be married. And so the idea of I'm risking my marriage, I'm, I don't know how not to be a mom. And so the idea of I'm, I'm risking my relationship and maybe even my access to my children, it kind of all came to a head. And I didn't have an event. It was the, more the realization that I'm getting close. I'm getting close to an event. And I effectively weaned myself off. And I made sure to close off the available doors to me by which I meant I contacted my primary care doctor as well as my pain management physician and said, I'm concerned about that I'm, I'm concerned that I'm getting addicted. I want you to not prescribe this for me anymore. And that was, those were easily the scariest phone calls I've ever made. What kind of, I'm sure the anxiety levels were through the roof, right? Well, yeah, you, you want to think that you're going to be strong enough to just stay sober, just be in recovery and it'll be fine. But the idea of, of leaving that door open was so tempting, especially as I got closer and closer to the next appointment. And there were several months in a row where I would think, okay, this is the month I'm going to cut down or I'm going to wean off. And then I wouldn't do it in the moment because I was like, well, well, what if, what if, what if? And I finally right after I had gotten a refill, maybe a week in. So I was well away from the point where you can see the bottom of the bottle. You know, it's sort of like a cat when, when they get anxious because they could see the bottom of their food bowl. That was me with my med bottle. Like if I could see the bottom, then that was a, that was starting to make me nervous. And so I, I waited until the med bottle was still pretty well full and I made those calls and it was so hard to do. And a big part of me wanted to immediately call them back and be like, wait, I didn't mean it. But ultimately it was the right decision. You know, I'm, I'm a much better mother and partner than I was. And even having sort of been in it while I was working, like I didn't, I was able to sort of parse out my usage. So I didn't show up to work high or, or you know, under the influence because I had to drive myself as well and i was i was super paranoid about that because if you get arrested for you know driving under the influence you lose everything so i was careful enough about that but i felt like it gave me a sense of when i sat down with somebody who was looking for detox or rehab like i i get it and i i never said to them oh yeah me too but i feel like i i was more able to avoid getting all judgy 
because I know I know what it is like when when you are when you are in it and you are in that initial pain and you're first trying to wean off and and all of the pain and the nausea and the the sweats and the different forms of insomnia and the nightmares and all of these things suddenly hit you from all angles you'd sell one of your own children for one more dose so i get it when people people tend to get sort of judgy about addicts a lot of the times and i remember thinking like even even coworkers of mine and i remember thinking like you don't have any idea do you? yeah that's the hard part and that's you know the hope of of part of this series that i'm working on is to try to break that stigma you know that you know that you don't understand what people are going through in that moment and and what it's like to have that what anxiety that fear of not having you know being sick and and not feeling good and and all that so so with that being said, so you, so that's your story. And then did you go to any programs or any groups or anything to try to help yourself or was this completely just done on your own? I did not. I have some fairly strong feelings about AA and NA, specifically that they were the best model that was available when they were made. So once upon a time, that was cutting edge. And now, for a lot of people, that is still their best route to treatment. And I don't ever want to take that away from anybody, because if it works for you and if it seems right for you, then great. Me... As a psychologist, I, there's a little bit of a challenge with the, first of all, the, the present tense nature of it, that, you know, you can have been in recovery or sober for 50 years and you still say, I am an addict. And if that's how you need to think of yourself to stay sober, okay. But I also think that there are some people who get stuck in that mindset and they don't allow themselves to see what else are you, what positive things are there about you and what other ways can you see yourself other than an addict? Because that can become your identity in a similar way to people saying, I'm in therapy, like it's a lifestyle. And that's not necessarily it. So that's one difficulty. And another is that it can be, depending on where you go and the culture of and the culture from meeting to meeting changes. So this is a tough one to know what you're coming up against. But there are there are cases of people being preyed upon, the vulnerable being preyed upon. For one, there are a lot of people who attend AA and NA meetings because they know that somebody will be selling outside. And so that's a concern. Also, you get a lot of, especially women more commonly, who are very, very vulnerable in their very earliest days of recovery, who 
really are showing up looking for a meeting for all of the right reasons. And there are people who don't have any history of addiction at all who may crash the meeting, specifically looking for vulnerable women to prey upon physically, sexually, financially, all kinds of ways. And that's concerning. Where I live, there's not a ton of gender-specific meetings, although in some places there are. But even so, like I said, it goes back to also having a hard time of feeling stuck in the definition as an addict. And so between those two things, I wasn't, it wasn't the right setup for me. And my plan was that if I couldn't get through a month sober, then I was either going to hook up into a methadone program or seek an outpatient therapist or inpatient rehab of some sort, depending on where I was at. I lucked out in that I'm really, really stubborn. And so when I decided I was going to keep using, I did. And then when I decided I was done, I stopped. And so for the first four or so years after that, I was super careful about maintaining total abstinence from all opiates because I was afraid of sliding back in. But I have a lot of medical issues and I have surgery several times a year. And so I started sort of carefully dipping back in, being really clear with my providers about like, I'd like a three-day script, but not longer. And I don't, you know, if I, if I call back for a refill, what that means is I need to be seen in the office because that's a sign that there's something wrong with me. And so, you know, I, I, I've lucked out in having really good providers as well who have worked with me on that and who don't have the sort of all or nothing thinking. How long has it been since you put it down to the point where you weren't abusing it? Um, I would say it's so about 2016, maybe 2015. So seven years? Seven years. Well, congratulations. Seriously, from the bottom of my heart, especially with all of the, the medical problems that you have and the pain that I imagine that you're in, I... I just want to say, if nobody else has told you, I'm super proud of you. Like that's, I know it's not easy, um, and it's it's easier to slide back into a pattern than it is to break the cycle, right? Absolutely, and that's it. It has been, you know, I I appreciate that, and it's, it, you know, it's like a lot of things. It we do the best we can with what we've got in the moment. And I lucked out that I have a I, I, I have stable housing, I have a you know a supportive family that I live with. My kids are great, and I have a lot of friends that I can lean on. And, and technology allows me to be in touch with them in ways you know I was able to find this hobby, this podcasting that I don't have to leave my house for. So if I'm not able to, so I, you know, I'm, I'm very privileged in a lot of ways and I, I don't ever discount that. And I also don't think about forever because we may get there. We may, I may reach a point where I'm like, you know, I can't function anymore and I need to think about getting back on something long-term. And 
I don't know what that will look like or when that will be, but I can't think that far ahead right now. So with with that being said, we'll shift gears a little bit. So you you've also been on the other side of it, right? Helping addicts and and helping them get clean or helping them get into programs and such like that. What does that look like for you being that you're an addict? Does that give you more of an empathetic tone or is it something that you like explain that for me? I mean, I think I'm prone to empathy by training and personality anyway. So I don't know that that made the difference, but what it did was make me more matter of fact in talking to people and more I have I have a, a sort of wider a wide angle view of what they're going for and so one one thing that helped me is very very early in my career this is before I had any issues with addiction myself I think it was before I was ever diagnosed or prescribed anything I'm sure it was I was working in a locked psychiatric facility in Massachusetts here. And one of my co-workers uh, had written a book. His name is Ed Kantzian, K-H-A-N-T-Z-I-A-N, I think. And he wrote a book, which is probably not like beach reading, but it, it, it was about effectively the idea is tell me what someone's drug of choice is and I can tell you something about their personality. And it's, it's not like a tarot card or telepathy kind of thing. It's just that like, if somebody is into uppers, cocaine or meth or Adderall, that often they, in this, I mean, recreationally, not prescribed Adderall for ADHD, but recreationally, that often they feel sort of stuck inside their own shell a little bit. And taking these uppers makes them feel expansive and big and talkative and able to break out more. And if someone is into opiates, they are experiencing either physical but often mental pain when especially when it's it's not prescribed in, in any format often there's a there's a heavy amount of trauma or mental pain that's either been addressed or maybe they've never admitted it to anybody before maybe they have translated it into physical pain because even the person can't speak about it um Alcohol is sort of a mixed bag because it's a really complicated drug. So if somebody is prone to sort of the life of the party, the binge drinking type, then often they are also looking for that ability to break out of their shell, you know. But if they are a heavy, frequent drinker, now you're looking more at the looking to numb out and looking to sedate themselves, that sort of thing. And so I feel like that was a major sort of foundation to my understanding of substance abuse and addiction before I ever experienced it myself, either with clients and patients or myself, myself. So that helped. But also, you know, 
when I was seeing a, a client or a patient in the ER and trying to figure out what's going on, one of the things that I had to do was we would get, when you show up the ER, you're not going to see a crisis clinician right away in most places. You show up and you get medically checked out and they'll draw blood and they'll take a urine sample and then you wait until the labs come back. So usually it's like four hours approximately from when you walk in the door to when you actually see somebody. And so by the time I walked in to see these patients, I had already seen their lab work. I already knew what the answer was. But I could ask, hey, so you gave a urine sample, right? And this is my section of the paperwork where we talk about substance abuse and, and drugs of addiction. Tell me, when I go check your chart, what's going to show up positive? And that's just a little bit of a different way of wording it than to say to somebody, what drugs do you use today? What street drugs did you use? You know, it's, it's just a little bit less intense and aggressive and takes the blame a little bit off of your lap about, okay, look, I'm going to assume that something's going to pop positive. You tell me what. Rather than listen, you pathetic user, which is what people can feel like they're being looked at sometimes. And so any ways that I could bring a sense of respect and acknowledgement that like, there really aren't any happy addicts. You know, I'm sure people are, are, are going <laughs> to yell at me and tell me, no, I'm an addict and I'm perfectly happy. But, you know, in my experience, I haven't met one yet that like people aren't using because it feels great. They're using because they're already feeling shitty and they found a chemical solution. It's just not the healthiest or longest term solution. You know, it's funny that you say that because I've talked to several people, you know, during this series so far, and it is almost every single person that I've talked to has said that same sentiment. You, there's not a happy addict. That is not somebody who chooses to use drugs is not a happy person. Or, you know, especially on the level of being addicted to something is that they're not, you know, they're, they're numbing something. Something inside of them is driving them to that. Well, especially because a lot of times, you know, especially common with uh, opiate and heroin users, is that they'll talk about, I wasn't even aware of the mental and physical pain that I was in until I was at a party, I was at my grandparents' house, I was wherever, and somebody gave me these pills and said, take these, try this. And I suddenly felt better, and I was shocked at how much better I felt. And that's a turning point for a lot of people, because they spend the rest of their time trying to find that relief again. So they're not using again because it feels good. They're using again because they want that moment of relief that they once had. The problem is that a big percentage of that first high is in the surprise, 
is in that discovery moment of like, oh, I didn't even realize how miserable I was until I wasn't feeling it. I was never to the point of addicted of addiction, but I definitely had substance abuse in my past. And I remember the first time that I took ecstasy and it was that moment that I, I, to this day, I still love it. Like the very first time I took it, I felt feelings that I will probably never feel again. And, but it's one of those things that, if I would have continued on the path that I was on, I probably wouldn't be where I'm at now. And but it's one of those things. It's an aha moment. That feeling of I I never realized how sad I was because it makes you feel so happy. And you know what I mean? But it's it's true. When you hit that chemical that makes you have that aha moment you fall in love with it. And, but the sad part is, is that you never get it again because I started taking it more and more after the first time and I never got the same feeling again. Right. Right. And, and another thing that I think people don't think about is, you know, they like to sort of lump all addicts into the same clump (laughs) for lack of a better word. And that one, one class of, of drugs that is out there in the world are called benzodiazepines. Benzos, Ativan, Clonopin, Valium, Xanax. Um, there's a bunch. Versed for people who you know who have had surgeries. One of the drugs that they use to knock you out for that is probably a, a benzo. I hate them. I hate benzos. So I could have, a, probably still could have as many as I wanted, and I guess arguably I do because. I only take them for I have I have one very specific phobia. I'm a, I have a fear of the dentist, and it's a profound enough fear that I cannot get into the dentist chair without knowing that they're going to put me under general anesthesia, even for a cleaning. And this stems from the sexual assault I had when I was twelve, which was not done by a dentist or in a dentist chair or anything to do with that. It's just the concept of being effectively held down with someone's hands in my mouth. I can't tolerate that. And so I have to have benzos to get out of the car and into the chair. And then they plug me into general anesthesia immediately there. And I have the best dentist ever. And I will be horrified when he retires. But that I'm, benzos are not my drug of choice. And I can't make them be. I also have no interest in uppers of any sort. You know, I have access. My, two of my kids have ADHD. I got all the Adderall I want, which is to say I don't want any, you know, but like I could, but that's just, that's not my drug of choice and I can't make it be. And that's an important thing. I think some people think of like once an addict, always an addict, or if you are sober or if you are in recovery, you have to be sober from all substances. But the answer is not really, I think. And this is me speaking from, you know, one woman's professional mindset. Your mileage may vary, but that I don't believe that total abstinence is necessary. Alcohol is never going to be my drug of choice again. It wasn't really a drug of choice in college so much. Like by the end, I had pretty much stopped drinking and I I sort of stopped and never picked up. And the only other times I've ever 
drank heavily. I looked back later and realized I didn't like that. You know, I could do it one night for a party. That's fine. But if I did it two nights in a row, I'm like, that's not fun. I don't like it. It's not my drug. I can't make it be. And and one other thing that I want to kind of go back, and I know I'm kind of pounding on AA and NA a little bit, but here's another problem that I have with that with that approach to sobriety is it it feels unforgiving to me in the way specifically that they count days. So you can have a thousand days clean and you drink on day 1001. You have a glass of wine at a cousin's wedding or the like. AA, the AA model says you're back to zero, which feels to me like all of that work that you just put in over the past three and change years, all of those thousand days are gone. And I feel like that disrespects the work that you did. And it doesn't give you the grace to say like, okay, if you, if you slip up, you, it, you're human. It's okay. Don't pick up again tomorrow is the answer. But there's a fair number of of people that I know who have said, like, once I picked up, whether it was narcotics or alcohol, and I realized I, I had broken my streak, I figured I was just going to tie one on. I, I was just going to get as high as I've ever gotten. Right. Because why not? And you already broke it. Yeah. And that's how people die. Yeah. That's, um, I watched this. I had somebody suggest a documentary to me on, um, HBO. It's called crime of my life. So, they follow these addicts from like the 80s to 2020 and somebody had been clean for years and decided to use heroin again and he ended up killing himself because he took the biggest shot he had taken ever and he hadn't used in years so his tolerance was nothing and he ended up dying and that's sad because you're right that is how people end up killing themselves i mean i also you know just a general plug out there for uh, legalization of marijuana specifically, I never in all of my years in the prisons, in the psych hospitals, and especially in the emergency rooms, I never saw anybody's cause of death be written down as marijuana intoxication. It's not going to kill you. Okay, you might get sick, you might be miserable, you might get a really bad headache. It might just not agree with you, whatever. I'm not saying go use it. What I am saying, though, is that I saw a lot of people die from drinking. Alcohol may be legal. Please don't pick up if you can avoid it, especially if you find yourself moving in the direction of addiction. It's dangerous stuff. And the thing about alcohol that a lot of people don't, no, even hardcore daily users, drinkers, is that there's a – so you think about the – most people are familiar with, with the concept of intoxication in, in the numbers of like 0.02 is how much your blood alcohol level goes up per hour approximately per drink per hour, right? 0.02, whatever. And so in most states in the U.S., the – legal limit is 0.08 and so that's you can have 
up to three to four drinks in an hour, and then you're illegal to drive. You're impaired for driving, right? So hardcore heavy drinkers, like we had, we saw people in the ER. So 0.08 means that 0.8% of your blood is alcohol. That's a simplified way of wording it, but 0.08, right? We saw people in the emergency room with 0.5, not 0.05, but 0.5. So you're talking six times the legal limit and you would never know it to look at them because in order to attain that level of intoxication, you have to work up to it. You have to build that tolerance significantly. And so they'll walk in straight, standing up, speaking clearly, seeming fine. And they walk in because it's cold outside or because more often they know if they've been through this this roller coaster a couple of times that they don't have any more alcohol. And so there's a danger point as you start to sober up. And so that blood alcohol level decreases, right? There's a window somewhere between, it depends on the person, uh, but somewhere between like 0.30 down to 0.20, give or take, so in, somewhere in that range. So you've got, you know, 0.30 is like four times the legal limit. And 0.20 is like two and a half times the legal limit about. And somewhere in there, there's a danger zone and we don't understand it very well, we being the medical and professional community. But there's a there's a, a danger zone where if you haven't told people that you're coming off of alcohol so that we can't treat you with appropriate medications, you are very, very likely to seize and die right there in the ER. It's it's a, there's a seizure spike that happens as you sober up. It's dangerous to sober up home alone. It's like people die like this. They don't even have to get in a car. Alcohol can kill you inherently. It doesn't have to be the long, slow, miserable death of liver disease or heart disease. It can kill you when you are going from a bender to sober overnight. And that's super dangerous. And we don't talk about that because the alcohol industry doesn't want you to. And we want to pretend that marijuana is dangerous somehow. And I've told my children already, like, look, I would rather see you high on pot seven days a week than see you drunk. But bigger issue, bigger, bigger picture, bigger issue, if you do choose to partake, you need to know that you can call me because I get it. And that's the part, that's the problem with the, with the alcohol industry is that it's socially acceptable, right? So everybody drinks beer together. Everybody drinks wine with their dinner and, you know, and so on and so forth. And, and I'm of the same mindset, 100%. I, I really, I truly believe that all drugs should be legal, but marijuana, especially it should be legal 100%. I feel like if people had another option they would put alcohol down. And I think you are starting to see a decrease in, in alcohol-related stuff in the states that are already uh, legalizing it recreationally, which is good. It, it, the people need their, uh, you know, people need options. It, it, 
it's just like prohibition. You can take something away from somebody, but they're still going to do it regardless, whether it's legal or not. And so I truly am of the mindset that it should be legal. They should have, people should have options to be able to do whatever they want. Well, I mean, like I said, you know, if, if you, you could, you could walk in, don't because it'd be creepy, but you could walk in behind me right now and, you know, pour a pile of, you know, Al Pacino in the Godfather style pile of white powder on the desk in front of me. And I wouldn't touch it. Like, I'm not interested because I'm not interested in uppers. I don't like feeling anxious. That's what I feel if I've had too much caffeine, much less. We don't, you know, like, I, I, it's not my thing. I, I wouldn't be interested. And so you might as well legalize and control it. Is because it's not going to create more or fewer addicts in the world. Well, Kate, before we go, I want, do you have any advice you could give somebody who might be struggling something, some words of wisdom, something that, you know, that worked for you that maybe would work for them kind of thing? I mean, that's, it's a tough one because for anything that might have worked for me, 10 others one one thing i would say is that you know my my sort of tagline on my show is you matter and i don't think people believe that and i don't think they hear it and i don't think they say it to other people in the world but addicts are one especially where society has made them think that you put yourself in this situation you made bad choices inherently you're a bad person then and you know you're unimportant and you might as well disappear and that's all complete bullshit that you matter to someone and you may not realize it like the 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 number of times that i've spoken to somebody through my podcast where i don't think of myself as like a big deal podcaster or whatever like any time a podcaster says that they're a big deal i'm like okay that's cute but anyway uh, it's 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 a hobby and it's a thing i do to make myself feel functional again and the fact that people listen is amazing and i'll i'll hear from somebody once in a while that'll say like either this particular episode or a thing that you said really helped me and one that i've bit of feedback that i've gotten from more than one person is that you know some days I'm struggling so much and I feel so completely alone and I'll listen to your show just to play to the end of the disclaimer because at the beginning of every episode I have this disclaimer that's like this podcast isn't safe for work small children or houseplants and I protect your privacy and confidentiality and it includes the suicide prevention lifeline number and then the words you matter and until about a year and a half ago, that was not ever me speaking. That was always, it was, my disclaimer is always friends of mine saying the disclaimer for me because I feel like there's something cool about having a different voice at the, the very top of each episode. And listeners will say like, you know, I just listened to hear the end of the disclaimer just to hear someone tell me that I matter today. And so I started ending my episodes with me saying it myself because there's no such thing i think is hearing it too much and so especially for people who are dealing with addiction 
like, look, it's shitty and it's a hard, scary world right now. And I get that you found a thing that helped you feel better for a little while and you may not be ready to pursue sobriety in whatever form that might look. But also don't give up on yourself yet because you matter. Kate, why don't you plug your podcast and where they can find you at? My show is called Ignorance Was Bliss. And sometime later this year, I will also be coming out with The Same River Twice. But that is still in its writing phases. But that'll be a true crime thing. And I am at IWB Podcast on all social media platforms. Kate, before we go... I just want to say, first and foremost, thanks for coming on. But I also want to say, good for fucking you for kicking it. Uh, You matter. I'm glad that you're still here. I'm glad we were able to meet. And I'm glad that you're able to tell your story. Because you do matter. You matter to your husband. You matter to your kids. And you matter to everyone's lives that you touch. And so, congratulations on your seven years. It's fucking amazing, and we need to normalize being able to tell each other how fucking proud of each other we are, and I am fucking proud of you, and keep on fighting the good fight, and again, I I can't thank you enough for coming on. Thank you. We leave you now with this episode of Addicted. Just remember that there are many people out there struggling with addiction issues, and for every one person who finds sobriety, There are millions out there who haven't overcome this demon known as addiction. Thank you for listening to Addicted.